The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 21, page 827, if you're using the Pew Bible. We continue to make our way through this Gospel. This morning we're looking at chapter 21 and verses 33 to the end of the chapter, verse 46, Matthew chapter 21, beginning then in verse 33, let us worship the Lord by listening carefully to this, the public reading of his word. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to, the, said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those tenants to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priest Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's go to our God in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you and praise you again this morning for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the gospel proclaimed to us again this morning. Father, as we hear it, we pray that you would come to us and bless us. Please open up our eyes that we might pull from your law the marvelous, wondrous things of him, our blessed Savior. By your grace, work in us by your word and by your spirit and recreate us to be more like him in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there are those among us, uh, even this morning, no doubt, there are those among us who really love gardening, right? They love to talk about what they're growing in their garden, fruits, vegetables. They love to get out there, even do the digging, prepare the soil, sow the seed, water, wait for growth. They don't mind waking up early in the morning and beat the heat, to beat the heat of the day and get out there and, and uh, clear away the weeds, maybe even find creative ways to keep out the squirrels and other critters which threaten to eat up the, the fruit of their labors. Those who are just, they love gardening, they're good at it. Maybe that describes you this morning. Or maybe you're like me. 
I get up early in the morning and I'm down at the, down on the couch reading my Bible, look out the window and see my father-in-law going out to the yard, out to work in the garden. And I say to myself, I really ought to get up and go out there and join him. I should get into gardening, gardening. maybe tomorrow. Well, I would submit to you this morning that this parable of our Lord reminds us that whether you enjoy going out and working in a literal garden, spiritually speaking, we are all called to garden. We are all to labor, to offer up to God the fruits of righteousness. We're in this uh, section this morning in which we see our, our Lord's authority has been being challenged by the religious leaders, and one of the way that he has uh, responded to that challenge is by telling three parables, polemical parables. These are parables which serve to rebuke the sinful nation, particularly its leaders, these very ones who are opposing Jesus. Israel's leaders and the nation have not been faithful in, in, in living as God has called them to be, and these parables speak to, to the terrible sin then of the nation and its leaders and the terrible consequences. What will become of the future of the nation, the future of God's people, the awfulness of sin? But we also see the, the beautiful response to such sin on the part of God, the way that even amidst such terrible sin, God was doing this, this great work. He was doing it through the, the work the person and work of the very one who tells this parable, which is before us this morning. Ultimately, this is a story I would sub submit to you, a story about our sin and God's grace to us. Our message this morning is this, that our Lord's parable of the vineyard tenants reveals our wretched sin and the Lord's marvelous grace in Jesus Christ. I want to keep it very simple, just two main points, if you look at the, the sermon outline, which actually was printed in the bulletin this week, as we have two separate bulletins, uh, it shows six points. These really were intended to be kind of two main points and just two sub points. So the, the, the main points are one and four, and then the uh, two sub points you see there. That's just to help us organize our thoughts a bit. I'm not going to cover them um, seriatim in, in order necessarily like this, but simply that. We are miserable wretches, but we have a marvelous Savior. And on this last day, all of us together before Zion launches, can you think of a better message, simple message on which to meditate than that, right? This was, this was John Newton's words. I'm modifying them a bit. But the simple message, I'm a miserable sinner, but oh, I have a marvelous, marvelous Savior. Let's think on that together this morning. Our first point then, we are miserable wretches. Miserable wretches, the two subpoints under that are Israel's history of sin culminates in her rejection of the Messiah, but that sin, secondly, that sin pictures what we all are by nature, miserable wretches, or perhaps we should say it this way, we are wretches who because of our sin deserve a miserable death. That's the language we find in the text, right, as you look at at verse 41 there. In fact, it's not Jesus who speaks those words. It's the religious leaders who confronted Jesus. That's their response. That's the, the, the very response which his parable served to solicit from them. 
It's, it's, it's really beautiful. It's masterful the way Jesus, the master, the prophet solicits that response. This is kind of, I think, kind of like the time David had committed his terrible sin with Bathsheba, and then he sought to cover up that sin, of course, by having Uriah killed. Do you remember how the Lord exposed that sin? The Lord exposed to him the prophet Nathan, and the, the prophet told a parable. He told a parable about a rich man who committed this terrible sin. He had plenty of his own ewe lambs, but he went to the poor man, and he took his ewe lamb, and he had it slaughtered to feed to his guests. And you may recall how when David heard that parable, he was angered. His, his, uh, his wrath was kindled, and he said, the one who deserves this thing surely deserves to die. And then the, the prophet turned on him, and he said, you are the man. Well, a similar thing really happens here by Jesus, the prophet, the Messiah prophet. I think for a brief moment here, the Lord kind of blinded these religious leaders to the fact that this, this parable he was telling was all about them. And so they hear this evil, evil sin and they become angry. What wretches! These ones, they deserve to die a miserable, miserable death. And the parable certainly does uh, describe a, an unimaginably wicked sin. I mean, just think about what we read here. We read about this, this master who rightly owns his vineyard. It's his vineyard. He's the one who has planted it. He's put that fence around it. He's dug the wine press in it. He's built this tower. And this was a common thing in Jesus' day the estate owner who, who might not be present because he's in different places, but he, he would rent out his vineyard to tenants, and they would enjoy the benefit of being able to, to farm and live off the fruits of that vineyard. But of course, they were required rightly to give them, to give to the master a portion of the yields. And so this master in the, the parable, he had been completely fair and generous. More than that, like he'd done everything he could possibly have done to ensure that this would be a fruitful vineyard and this would greatly benefit the tenants just as it would benefit the master. Now, what is this parable about? Well, really, it's a parable, I believe, a parable about Israel. It's about what the Lord had done in taking Israel and making them to be his people. This really speaks to what we see in Isaiah chapter 5, if you recall that, that love song where the Lord described Israel as that vineyard which he, the Lord, had planted, just like the parable in our text this morning for Israel. The Lord had done everything for his vineyard. It says in Isaiah 5 verse 4, the Lord says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it, and Isaiah makes it clear that the vineyard represents the nation. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Just think about Israel's history. Think about what God had done. He'd done everything. He'd gone and powerfully delivered them out of Egypt and cared for them and led them through the wilderness. And then he brought them to into where they conquered their enemies and he established them in the land. He planted them in the land of promise as his vineyard. He proved his goodness, his, his steadfast love and his faithfulness by doing everything. And he had every reason to expect that the nation should then turn and respond in kind and offer up to God the, 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 the proof or those fruits 
of, of righteousness, walking in steadfast love and in faithfulness. But instead, what did they give him? How did they thank him? To use the language we see in, in Isaiah 5, we can say it this way, the Lord went to look for good grapes, and instead he found wild grapes. Instead of justice and righteousness, instead he found bloodshed and outcry against the wicked. And that's exactly what continued down to the day of Jesus. They were coming against him in murderous intent. They, they, they failed to respond by being a righteous people, and it, and it gets even worse. What is it, in a sense, that, that the, the parable reveals, but what is it that really reveals the sin of the nation is how did they respond to the Lord's word, the Lord's prophets? That's what this parable brings out. The master represents God, and his servants represent the prophets. And so we have a description of, of how it was with Israel down through the history of the nation where the Lord sent the prophets. How did they receive them? Well, the parable puts it well, doesn't it, in verse 35. The tenants took his servants and they beat one, killed another, stoned another. God's own servants they took and they treated shamefully. And in in treating his servants shamefully, they were treating the Lord shamefully. I think it calls to mind another incident in the life of David, the time you might recall when King David sent his servants to Hanan, the king of the Ammonites. Hanan's father had died, and David wanted to send and console the king. Well, King Hanan, you remember, didn't, didn't trust David. He smelled a rat. Surely he has sinister motives here. And so he took David's servants, and he shaved their beards, and he even cut their garments, serving to, to expose them, make them indecent. It was this humiliating, terrible act. And when David heard what happened, he was so angered that he, he came against King Hanan with a with an army well we see in our text that the lord showed a lot more mercy to his people than david had how did the lord respond he sends prophets they're mistreated the lord sends more prophets verse 36 he sent again sent other prophets more than the first and how did they respond well it says and they did the same to them and so this is this is unbelievable This is unimaginable, right? Who would ever even think of committing such a terrible, terrible sin? And yet the point is that this is exactly what Israel did. Listen to these words, or if you want to even flip over in your Bibles to the end of 2 Chronicles, where we see this described, 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 14, and notice as, as you hear these words that this describes the sin of the nation and in particular the sin of the, in the, in the temple, which Jesus has also focused on in, uh, in this context in Matthew's gospel. But it says in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 14, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. But then look at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because, listen to this, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling 
place. You can keep your finger there. But note that God was so kind. He was so patient. He sent the prophets. They continued in their sin, but he graciously, persistently, again and again, he called prophets to call them to himself, to call them to repentance. God's kindness should have moved them to repentance. They should have turned and offered up the fruits, as it were, the fruits of faith, repentance, and faith. They should have walked in righteousness and been faithful. Instead, what did they do? Well, the chronicler continues in verse 16, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So that was the nation's covenant-breaking history, and indeed, they came under great judgment, didn't they? But ultimately, how did the Lord respond? Well, that kind of brings us back to the, the parable. How did the master respond to this wicked, wicked sin? Finally, it says in verse 37, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my Son, amazing that Jesus would speak those words to these disrespectful uh, religious leaders. But, but what a, what a powerful reminder. This is how God responded. The Son of God was sent into the world for us. And how did they respond to that? Well, the nation's sin culminated in their taking and crucifying the Son of God. Let's kill him and we will take the, the inheritance will be ours, right? Really? Did they really think they would get away with this? It sort of exposes sin for its awfulness. It's, it's foolishness. Sin is ugly. Sin is irrational. Sin is vile. But this is a, this is a picture. This is a picture of what you are and what I am by nature. Israel's story, I would submit to you. We would do well to remember this morning. Israel's story serves to retell the story, which is our story, the story of Adam. And that's why when another prophet speaks in describing the awfulness of the sin of the nation, he writes this, Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly, faithlessly with me. Israel's sin reminds us of our sin in Adam. And we recall that, but where was Adam placed? He was placed in the garden, Eden, a literal garden, perhaps, perhaps more, more like an orchard, right? All those trees. And where, where we read how Adam was called to keep the garden. I don't know if prior to sin, whether there was to be any offerings of fruit, but we, we certainly, Adam was called to offer up to the Lord the fruits of righteousness. And we know the tragic story, Adam's sin and Adam's fall. We fell all. That sin plunged all of us into a state of sin and misery such that we are indeed by nature miserable wretches who deserve the wages of sin, which is death. And we are indeed by nature miserable wretches. We, we receive God's good gifts and we take them and we rebel against him. We, 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 we act as if, as if we own them, right? We have a right to them. We'll take them for ourselves. Miserable sin, wretches who deserve a miserable death, even the second death, even hell, the judgment of the lake of fire. But as we see in this parable ourselves, as we perceive the awfulness of sin, well, that makes the gospel oh so sweet. That brings us to our second and last point this morning. Yes, we are miserable wretches. Oh, but we have a marvelous, 
marvelous Savior. Again, we have the, just the main point and the two subpoints. That's Christ, who is the one who bears the, the fruit of true righteousness. And he does so not only for us, but also in us. And that's because we are in him. We are the true Israel in him and in Christ. And we become, become God's beloved fruit-bearing vineyard in Christ. Back that a bit. Marvelous Savior. I use that word marvelous because we see it right there in the text. Jesus uses that word in verse 42, and he's citing the psalm, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. We just think about that this morning, and if we can maybe extend the, the garden metaphor and just imagine uh, Israel as this garden, which is a just a terrible, despicable excuse of a garden. If you left your garden un, unattend, untended for you know weeks and months, and it was just completely overgrown with weeds, all of the fruit has died. Whatever fruit is just wild fruit eaten up by the animals, the critters a shameful embarrassment of a garden. But something amazing happens that right up in the middle of this, this mess grows something beautiful. We could describe it with Solomon's beautiful love language in the Song of Songs, chapter two, verse one, maybe a, a lovely rose or a lily. We could say as the early church fathers did that Jesus, Jesus is the rose of Sharon. Jesus is the lily of the valley. Or we could describe it using our Lord's own language in his own metaphor where he describes himself or he calls himself or he claims to be in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I am all that Israel was called to be but failed to be. I am the fruit-bearing vineyard of the Lord. Where Israel was unfaithful, I will be faithful. And Christ was faithful. Christ is the one who bore the fruit of true righteousness in all of his wonderful obedience, and especially where that obedience culminated in him, his uh, offering himself a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. How marvelous. A wicked Israel had said in so many words, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours, Right? Wicked Israel took the Son of God and they, they sought to throw him out of the vineyard. They killed him. But Israel, at her absolute worst, showed the Lord at his absolute best, or at least the, the culmination of the revelation of God's great steadfast love and faithfulness, magnified at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The stone that the builders rejected indeed has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. I hope it's marvelous in your eyes this morning. Friends, have you responded to this message in repentance and faith? Speaking particularly to anyone who might be here this morning who's never trusted in Christ, I want you to see that if you've not come to him truly, then you yet stand with the religious leaders who opposed him. And without him, you are under the great burden of the guilt of your sin. And without him, you have wicked hearts. 
You have no ability to, to do anything that will truly please God in your life, but to think that this same Jesus, this marvelous Savior, stands right here, right now, with his outstretched, nail-pierced hands, his arms. He offers himself to you. He invites you, come to me. And then the warning is, if you'd never come, you'll end up being crushed by him. Don't miss the warning of verse 44. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. I'd like to think that he, two, one of two things will happen. Either, either you will, by God's grace, fall upon Christ and your heart will be broken to him. But if you refuse to come to him, what does it say? When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You will be crushed under the judgment, the wrath of God. This is, I think, a likely refre- uh, reference to uh, Daniel chapter 2, that, that, that prophecy where, the, where Christ and his kingdom is, is described as a stone which will at last dash to pieces all of the kingdoms of this world, and his kingdom will endure forever and ever and ever. But what a warning, friends. Do not remain outside of Christ and his kingdom. You don't want him to come as your enemy when he comes to judge the living and the dead, because if you do, you will indeed face a miserable death, even the second death, the lake of fire. But if you turn to him, turn to him now, trust in him, and you will find him to be such a marvelous Savior, the very one who himself took that judgment upon himself when he went to the cross at Calvary. And to think that all who trust in him are made to be heirs of his eternal kingdom. Just think about those words in verse 43 where where Jesus told the religious leaders, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And this is why I say, by the way, that in Christ, we are the true Israel of God. And verse 43 is such an important verse in this context, particularly because the rest of the parable is essentially the same that we see in Mark, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. Verse 43 is unique to Matthew, this, this statement, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, or given to a nation producing its fruits. Important verse, it speaks to a theme that kind of runs throughout this section and really the entire gospel. And it speaks to the question of who are the true people of God? Who is the true Israel? And when I say we are the true Israel in Christ, I'm not saying that, you know, we Gentiles have come in and, and we have replaced Israel. You know, there are those who, uh, who don't like our covenant theology and they accuse us of holding to those people. They hold to replacement theology or supersessionism. You think that, that you have superseded the nation of Israel. Covenant theologians didn't invent those terms. terms. Those are derogatory, derogatory terms would have kind of been imposed upon us. But we should never think of ourselves that way. We said, we, look at us. We've replaced Israel. We've superseded Israel. Of course, not. We, 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 we understand that the promises made to Israel are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Again, he's the true Israel. He's the faithful fruit-bearing vineyard which the Lord has planted. Matthew shows us he is the, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His gospel, the gospel of the kingdom was, was 
preached to Israel. Indeed, it continues to be preached to Israel. And the response of any Israelite, according to the flesh, to Christ will determine whether or not that person is of the true Israel of God. The true Israel are all those who are in Christ, united to Christ by faith. We don't replace them as we come to Christ. We are blessed, humbly blessed and thankful to be included among them. The gospel's gone to the Jew first, but praise God also to the Greek, the Gentiles, we Gentiles, Romans eleven seventeen. we have been grafted in, we have been made part of the olive tree of Israel, which is Christ himself. And in him, then we share in the commonwealth of Israel. We are heirs of the covenants of promise, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. So much we can say uh, say about that, all of covenant theology and so forth, but it really boils down to this. What is it that we learn from our text? To whom has the kingdom been given? Verse 43 tells us it's been given to a people producing its fruit, a people producing It's fruit, not a divided people. There are not two kingdoms of God, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. No one kingdom of God, but it is a kingdom made up of those who produce its fruit. That is, they are united to Christ. And by the fruit-producing spirit of Jesus Christ, they produce its fruits. The Matthew 21 fruits of the kingdom are one and the same with the Galatians 5 fruit of the Spirit. Those in Christ are a people who produce its fruits. And oh, how blessed, how blessed we are this morning to be that people. What a glorious privilege. What a, what a holy obligation that brings by the Spirit. You then are called to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But as we abide in Him, as we abide in Christ, we shall bear much fruit. And Christ calls us to live as His fruit-bearing people. I think on, on one level, we can say that, yes, the stewardship of the kingdom was taken away from those religious leaders in Israel. And to whom was it entrusted? Sort of initially, on one level, it was entrusted to the the 12, right? That lowly, humble band of disciples. Didn't Jesus tell them, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom as faithful witness of Christ, witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They went forth as the, the, the tenants, the stewards of the vineyard, and they went forth faithfully scattering the seed of the gospel, watering the, the, the gospel, trusting God to bring growth in his vineyard. They, in every way, by God's grace, they showed themselves to be faithful laborers in God's vineyard. They were indeed a people who produced the fruits of the kingdom. But more generally, this was a prophecy about the church. This was a prophecy about all of us as believers. We are all those who are called to be faithful laborers in God's vineyard. Certainly ministers, if I may speak to the, uh, a new minister taking a church plant, and those of us who are ministers ought to listen well. You who hold the office, you who are called to preach and teach, you are called to do so faithfully be faithful tenants, faithful laborers in the Lord's vineyard, faithful stewards of the gospel 
of the kingdom and church leadership. Good, good reminder, right? We're about to launch a church plant. We're about to commission officers, but this speaks to all of us who are officers, elders. Just think about what the awesome, the solemn responsibility it is that Christ has entrusted into your care the vineyard of his church. What a reminder he calls you to be faithful, faithful as you shepherd the flock, faithful as you exercise oversight in the church as you lead the people to Christ, lead them to, to abide in Christ. What a, what a reminder it is of your duty to abide in him, that you might be fruitful in your labors, lead, leading God's people. Same is true for the deacons, the one deacon going to, to a South Wake and, and all of the deacons. Be filled with the Spirit, right? Be filled with, with Christ and with his love and his compassion such, such, that it, such that it might so overflow in your life that you might be a faithful example of his love and compassion as you discharge the duties of your office. Brothers, be faithful. And not just the officers, not just leaders, not just, it's all of us, you know? At the risk of offending the green thumbs out there, it really doesn't matter so much whether I ever, I ever get out there and become a worker in the, the garden, literally. But we are all called to be faithful laborers in God's garden, Christ's vineyard. We're all, we all have a duty to cultivate in our hearts the, 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 the word of God growing and producing that fruit in us. Even children, thinking about that, the children, right? Uh, we, we learned, our Lord taught us, to them have been given the kingdom. They are called children. You are called the people to who are to produce fruit. Jesus calls you to hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. You belong to Jesus. The seed of the word of Jesus has been planted in your heart by his spirit. He has not only forgiven you, but he has changed you. And you have a duty to abide in him, ever to be trusting in him. When you sin, you say, forgive me. Forgive me, Jesus. And change me, Jesus. Come into my heart. Change me. May, may, may we all be faithful in cultivating uh, the good, the hearts, our hearts, that they might be good soil, ever receiving the word and, 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 and the word abiding in us and producing fruit. What kind of fruit does the Lord call you to produce, children? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And this not only to benefit ourselves, but in order to, to bless our brothers and sisters and ultimately to bring glory to our Father in heaven. Miserably wretched sinners, but what a marvelous Savior, what marvelous grace. Brothers and sisters, let us be faithful, faithful laborers in the vineyard of the Lord, even until the day that Christ comes again from heaven in glory. And he says, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master, and we will, we will enter in to that garden paradise in glory where we will be in the presence of God, where we will be 100% controlled by the Spirit, producing fruits unto the glory of God forever and ever. Let's pray.